thanks for choosing this BDSM podcast and I'm with Asim Malhotra who many of you will know because of his prominence in getting revolutionary health messages to various communities. He's controversial because not everyone agrees with what he has to say but the introduction to his recent book describes him as being a renowned and popular interventional cardiologist. It says that he energetically communicates knowledge and skills over a wide range of media. This is important. He fairly broadcasts controversial science, which is not widely accepted by the public or the medical profession. And we know this puts him under pressure in the profession and in the community. So he's a brave man, Asim. Thanks for being on the podcast. Pleasure to be here, Queen. Now, you have chatted to the BJSM community on different occasions, but we're here to try to help BJSM community members make up their mind about their own health choices because then they can share those with patients. And it is very confusing right now. And I want to begin with the first issue being the fact that low fat is really high sugar, but not everyone understands that. When I tweeted to say, look, unfortunately, low fat equals high sugar, I got a bunch of tweets back where people saying, no, no, you can have chicken, um, you know, you can have other grains and things, as if we're going to have, like, chicken yogurt all of a sudden. So people don't understand that low fat in the field does essentially mean high sugar. Why is that a problem, and um, is what I'm saying true? Kareem, I think you're absolutely right. When we talk about low fat, we're really talking about foods that are marketed and sold as low fat under the premise that eating low fat is good for you. So a lot of the foods that are marketed as low fat in the supermarkets that people buy and pick up, buy them on that claim. But in fact, when you take fat out of foods, whether it's yogurt, for example, um, you know, the food industry adds sugar to replace the fat to improve the taste and people are have been consuming excess sugar as a result of this low-fat food message, which in itself is, as we now know, is fatally flawed. And as, as we write about in the book, when you look at the increase in consumption of calories in the United States between 1961 and 2011, most of it has come from the consumption of uh, refined carbohydrates and uh, vegetable oils. Now, the vegetable oils issue is based upon lowering cholesterol. So along with low fat, you have foods that are marketed as proven to lower cholesterol, which we know doesn't have any benefit on people's health whatsoever, um, based upon all the evidence. And in fact, has increased consumption of, of uh, substances and foods that are more likely to be harmful to your health. And let me jump in there. So for the listener who's not a cardiologist and doesn't follow the literature, Summarize really concisely this argument that cholesterol is not an important risk factor. Well, I think we've ignored the nuance when it comes to cholesterol. And the public health messaging for decades has been, you know, the lo- fear cholesterol and get it as low as possible, whether it be through diet or drugs. But the reality is there are a number of problems with this. One is when you look at cholesterol as a risk factor, um, it's not as important as we believe it to be. I mean, certainly. If you look at LDL cholesterol, what's been, you know, portrayed as being the, the bogeyman when it comes to heart disease and, and, and something to be feared. Um, when you look at, you know, certainly young men uh, and mathematical modeling analysis has shown that LDL cholesterol as a risk factor for young men certainly is much lower down the list. I mean, the most important risk factor is insulin resistance. Then you have high blood pressure and body mass index. You've got triglycerides and HDL cholesterol, which is a much more uh, important marker of risk of coronary disease. 
But the reason LDL has been pushed to the top is because we've had drugs, we've had statin drugs that lower LDL cholesterol and have shown some benefits in clinical trials, although we now know that those are very marginal. And therefore, cholesterol has been pushed to the top of the list when it isn't actually as important as we believe it to be. On the other side of it, Kareem, what's really interesting is myself and a number of international scientists did a, um, a research paper published in BMJ Open a couple of years ago. And what we found was actually um, LDL cholesterol, if you're over 60, was not associated with heart disease. And in fact, was inversely associated with mortality. And uh, the explanation for that, which, is off, which has been forgotten, if you like, for such a long time, is cholesterol is one of the most vital molecules in the body. Without it, we would die. And there is some evidence to suggest that cholesterol has an important role in the immune system. And elderly people in particular are vulnerable to infections that may cause them to die, such as pneumonia and stomach infections. So that's probably a protective mechanism there. But at the very least, we can say that the role of cholesterol in heart disease has been grossly exaggerated. And focusing on lowering cholesterol by any means is certainly, um, you know, a very flawed scientific and medical approach to managing the patient. You need to treat the patient as a whole. Um, and when it comes to dietary trials that have shown benefits, whether it's primary prevention through Mediterranean diet or secondary prevention through Mediterranean diet, i.e. people without heart disease who are at risk of heart disease or people who have heart disease, you know, when you look at the benefits in terms of reduction in death rates or heart attacks or strokes, there's no difference in cholesterol between the intervention group um, and the, uh, the control, which suggests, and we know this, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's quite clear, when you look at dietary changes that help people's health, it seems to have nothing to do with cholesterol whatsoever. On this, many people understand conceptually that sugar is bad, but they, they only think about added sugar and teaspoons of sugar in coffee and the obvious sugars, but there are a lot of hidden sugars. And then there are these carbohydrates that are called you know, very complex carbohydrates and ancient grains. Are they healthy products or is there a concern about these other type of carbohydrates that have been marketed as being healthy carbohydrates? Well, I think there are good carbs and bad carbs, if you like. And what I advise my patients to do, and what, you know, I follow my own advice as well, Kareem, um, is to really avoid the refined carbohydrates. So these are the high glycemic index carbohydrates, carbohydrates that lack fiber in particular. You know, these are white bread, pasta, rice, potatoes certainly consumed in excess, which many people are doing, you know, putting it at the base of the food pyramid is, is, has, been, um, has been harmful to public health because, you know, this is, these are foods that lack little nutritional value. They have very little nutritional value and they spike your glucose. And, you know, the, what, we, what we're now learning, and to put it in simplistic terms, is something called a, a, the carb cycle, the constant carb cycle, which makes you feel constantly hungry. You're not feeling satiated, so you're not feeling full. You're consuming basically what something that gets converted into glucose, which if you're not going to burn it instantly is essentially going to be converted to fat and um, interferes with hormones that control appetite. Certainly sugar does. So what you do is you set up this vicious cycle of, of feeling hungry all the time. And what's interesting is you can tell people to eat less, but you can't tell people to stop feeling hungry. And what's interesting is when you remove these sorts of foods from the diet or certainly curb the consumption of them, and I see this with many patients, and there's good evidence out there that exists as well. People find that they feel fuller for longer, and they can actually survive on two or three meals a day, whereas before they were constantly hungry and snacking and thought that was quite normal. So I think there's a lot of benefits to reducing the refined carbohydrates from the diet. And again, you know, they're going to cause the biggest spikes in glucose and insulin, which is not good for type 2 diabetics or pre-diabetics, but also 
we know insulin resistance is the biggest risk factor for heart attack. Um, uh, and, and it's linked to many other chronic diseases, whether it being a precursor for type 2 diabetes and also linked to cancer and dementia. So you're actually, you know, hitting lots of health benefits when you cut out the sugar and refined carbohydrates from your diet. So we're knocking over some myths, Asim. And when one explains these things to folks, there's an argument that a calorie is a calorie. So a certain number of calories from a can of Coke is just the same number of calories is, as broccoli. Does that fly? No, it doesn't make any sense because, uh, you know, as David Haslam has said, chair of the National Obesity Forum in the past, it's extremely naive of the public for to think that a calorie of bread and a calorie of alcohol and a calorie of meat have the same metabolic effects on the body. So when we talk about calories, first and foremost, people worry about excess calories and therefore obesity. Um, but there are so many problems with this. One is you're not thinking about how what you're consuming has an effect on different hormones in your body that control appetite and you know influence metabolism, influence risk of heart disease, high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, etc. So there are calories that are going to have a more detrimental effect on your health and ones that are going to have a better effect on your health. The second aspect of it all is that when it comes to weight, you know, what's being forgotten is certain calories make you feel full and satiate you. And actually, we know that calories in particular from fat in general and from protein are certainly more satiating than um, and also fiber, of course, uh, from the whole from from, you know, whole foods and vegetables are more satiating, keep you feel full versus calories that come from refined carbs and sugar. So I think that that is a fatally flawed message, public health message, and that needs to change. So rather than focus on calories, it's where the calories come from that's more, much more important. I see when people are talking about obesity and appetite, they often fail to mention insulin and other hormones, and they often don't talk about gluconeogenesis. And to me, that's flawed, as if we don't have an endocrine system. What are the key hormone issues? Because it is complicated. Yeah, it is complicated, Kareem. And I think that actually we, we need to simplify those messages. First and foremost, you know, you can tell people to eat less, but you can't tell them to stop feeling hungry. So the question is, what is driving appetite? You know, that people are constantly eating and snacking. And over time, obviously, they're going to consume excessive amounts of the wrong sorts of foods and calories and end up becoming overweight or obese. And uh, the, the, there are some crucial hormones involved in controlling appetite mechanisms. You know, leptin, is a hormone that is made by fat cells in response to energy deposition. And when leptin rises, it essentially tells our brain that we're full. Um, what's interesting is insulin uh, blocks the action of leptin or stops leptin doing its job properly. So if you're chronically raising your insulin levels over time, what's going to happen is it's going to interfere with those hormones that help you feel full, such as leptin. And it's going to create this vicious cycle of constantly feeling hungry. And I think that's something that has been neglected when we're having this whole discussion around, um, you know, what are the root causes of obesity and how are we going to tackle it? And interestingly, stress as well is, is something that, you know, increases glucose that can also, you know, through cortisol mechanisms and then, you know, secondarily will increase insulin and increase insulin resistance. So all of these things interact. And, uh, you know, this is really at the root of many of the problems and chronic disease problems that we've got, as well as what's driving obesity. So we need to focus on that. And if we do, then we will hit the elephant in the room. And let's talk about the POP diet. It's the name of your book. And congratulations, you've pulled together a ton of great stories in this book, and it's based on good science. So why should a listener consider the POP diet 
Kareem, you know, the, what's interesting is we went to Pioppi first and foremost. The story behind Pioppi is that this was a southern Italian village where uh, the American scientist Ansel Keys spent most of his time over 30 years doing his research. And the reason he was in this particular village is that you know, traditionally they, the people that lived there were extremely healthy. Even now, the average life expectancy of a, of a, of a villager in Pioppi, both for men and women, has a population of around 200 people is 89 you know almost 10 years um living longer than the average tour de france cyclist and interestingly without doing any so-called prescribed exercise they just kept moving everywhere they were just walking all the time and weren't sedentary um and you know so what we've done is we've gone to that village we spent time there we tried to look at you know how do these people live what's the history of the way they live um in terms of the kind of foods they eat what exercise they do what are their stress levels like etc the sense of community and how do we marry the secrets of the village with up-to-date, independent, modern scientific evidence around um, various lifestyle factors and development of disease? And that's what we've done with the book, really. So we've, we've created that story, but then we've also gone through busting many myths that are prevalent in, in today's, you know, in, in the modern day that I know and believe are driving many problems and, and poor lifestyle choice, choices and behaviors that are making people sicker. And this applies to many things, you know, including the fact that, you know, cholesterol has been over-exaggerated, saturated fat does not clog the heart arteries, sugar and refined carbs are really the main dietary culprits, including industrial seed oils as well. So there are many things that we bring together in the book and we try to simplify it in a way that we provide enough science but we make it, um, you know, an enjoyable and easy read. And then at the end, we have a plan. We, we actually offer a specific 21-day plan that people can adopt. doesn't matter whether you're overweight or obese or you're a so-called normal weight. You know, something that's going to, in the longer term, improve your health, but also improve health markers in the short term. And uh, we put it all together. And essentially, um, Kareem, you know, myself and Donal, my co-author, who's a former international athlete, as you know, um, you know, these, this, is, this is actually... Um, the the kind of lifestyle that we aim to follow and and and, and adapt and adopt in our in, in our every in our day to day living, whether it's dietary stuff or whether it's even just focusing on the fact that you know having good social relationships, you know, they're a very strong sense of community in Piopi, and we've neglected the fact that good social interaction, good relationships, is actually crucial to good health, you know, and there is a big problem with increasing depression in society at the moment. Um, you know, it's estimated that over a million men and women in the UK over 50 suffer from severe loneliness, loneliness. And we know social isolation is a big risk factor for premature mortality. So we need to think a little bit differently um, as a society as well as we move forward, if we want to actually have a healthier, more productive, happier society. What's been the take on the Poppy Diet, the book? Sometimes you have interesting comments from people when something like this comes out. What's been the basic story and something that's interesting from what you've heard in the last few weeks? Well, one thing that's been, you know, I've been really delighted by is that we've had some endorsements some, from, from some very eminent doctors, including the chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, Professor Dame Sue Bailey, two very senior researchers from Cochrane Collaboration, and many other doctors, um, including uh, even, even um, you know, a famous politician, the former Secretary of State for Health, Andy Burnham, who's now the mayor of Manchester, has said this book has the power to make millions of people, you know, healthier and happier. Um, and that's been great. Uh, more recently, what's interesting, Kareem, as you know, you know, I fully uh, understand and believe that if we're really going to improve population health, it does need government intervention as well. You know, we need to improve the food environment and 
And actually that won't happen without political action. And only two weeks ago, Keith Vaz, who's chair of the all party parliamentary diabetes group in parliament, actually lauded the book and called on 100 MPs, which have the highest prevalence of type 2 diabetes in their constituencies, to follow the Piopi diet over the summer recess. So, um, you know, that was really fantastic. And I think that's unprecedented, really, for a, what, what's been, you know, marketed in some ways as a diet book, which is a lifestyle plan, really, for and a healthcare manifesto. To get a mention in the British Parliament, I think that's a sign of, of progress. And I'm very proud of that, that that's happened. On the subject of politicians contributing, and you made the point that the government does have to intervene as part of a coordinated society effort to improve health. The argument comes up saying it's a nanny state. And what's your take when people make that criticism of government being involved? You know what, Kareem, people talk about nanny state, but nanny state has actually been responsible for actually making people healthier. Um, over the last century, we've, you know, we've had an increase in life expectancy of around 30 years since 1900. 25 of those years have come from, you know, really most of that has come from um, government intervention, whether it's, you know, smoke-free buildings, seatbelts in cars, safe drinking water. You know, we, we need laws and rules that benefit the rest of the whole of society. And um, I don't think there's any real strong argument saying this is a nanny state. And, and the other thing is we know that when it comes to food behavior, most of it is going to be influenced by the food environment. So, you know, making the healthy choice the default choice is going to have a much bigger impact on population health than individual counting or counseling or education. I mean, just to give you an example about the education aspect. Now, you could argue that the the education is wrong, but you know, 50% of NHS employees, Kareem, are overweight or obese, and that's 50% of 1.4 million NHS employees. So, you know, education is ineffective when the food environment is working against you. And what we need really is government intervention and action, like with smoking. I mean, the reduction in smoking prevalence happened because of you know, um, interventions through regulation that curb the availability, the affordability and the acceptability uh, of smoking. Uh, and that only happened once government intervened. And we've got the same. We can apply the same principles to to sugar and certainly sugary drinks. We've got a sugary drinks tax coming in next year in the UK. Um, I, you know, and uh, I think that's a, a great testament to the fact that the the messaging has been very strong. We've got a lot of media interest over the last few years. Um, you know, and the British Journal of Sports Medicine piece that I co-authored with Tim Noakes and Steve Finney, You Can't Run a Bad Diet, um, you know, has had, I think, has had a significant impact in in shifting the narrative. Um, and we did mention specifically in that piece the importance of, of, of regulatory measures such as sugar drinks tax so that will reduce consumption in the population of sugar. So we should see a big impact from these interventions very quickly, but there's no room for complacency. There is still a problem with the fact that we've still got junk food association with sport, which needs to be curbed. Um, we need to ban junk food advertising, especially that targets children, the most vulnerable members of society. And if we do that collectively through government intervention, then we will have a healthier, happier future. Let's bring this to a close, Asim, by finishing with one other myth that you've been busting, which is the one about saturated fats clogging the arteries. And you had a terrific editorial that went very, very well in the BJSM and was picked up by media debunking this idea that fat clogs arteries like a drain pipe. Yes, absolutely, Kareem. And, uh, you know, I think one of the things we address in the book, we, we talk about, first of all, what the evidence suggests. And there have been a lot of misconceptions around 
dietary saturated fat thinking that it raises cholesterol and therefore that automatically causes heart disease the reality is that isn't 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 the case um the overwhelming totality evidence shows that saturated fat per se is not the culprit causing clogging of the arteries and the real more plausible explanation certainly is around insulin resistance which we've talked about briefly and inflammation cardiovascular disease chronic well heart disease coronary disease is a chronic inflammatory condition and um, the, you know what we need to target is all the different um, behaviors, if you like, uh, and mechanisms that cause or contribute to that inflammatory process. And they're going to come from you know poor diets, sedentary lifestyle, smoking, stress. And we address all of these in the book. And if we as individuals address all of these things and put them at the forefront, then certainly we will see potentially an end to the epidemic of coronary heart disease. Certainly the global campaign to lower cholesterol over the last three decades has not done that. You know, um, heart disease is still one of the biggest killers in the Western world. And even premature death from heart disease is still a big killer. It's because we focused on the wrong thing. But having said that, you know, astute listeners will say, well, that rate of heart attack deaths has gone down dramatically over the last 20 years. So respond to that. Yeah, absolutely correct. Cardiovascular mortality has dropped significantly. Biggest factor easily that's driven that reduction has been reduction in smoking prevalence. And I think the rest of it you can attribute to mainly better acute treatments such as emergency stenting for heart attacks, um, as well as drugs. Now, whether statins have contributed to mortality in the population is more debatable. And we recently published um, uh, a paper, myself, Robert Lustig and Marion DeMassey in the Pharmaceutical Journal, and we'd cited research which interestingly showed that in Western European countries in the last um, decade or so, there's been no clear evidence of a reduction in mortality in the population because of statin drugs. And I think that can be easily explained by the fact that when you look at the secondary prevention trials of people who have heart disease who take statins, and we have to take those with a pinch of salt because they're industry-sponsored trials and they're selected group of patients, even then, when you look at the median increase, or if you like, average increase in life expectancy of someone taking a statin who's had a heart attack for several years, it's a mere four days. So if you think about the fact across the population, many people will not be able to adhere to statins or get side effects, and plus the increase is only four days in the selected industry-sponsored trials, I think it's an easy, easy scientific explanation to see why there's been no reduction in mortality, cardiovascular mortality in the population from statins. Well, thanks, Hussein. And lots of practical facts for listeners from you there today. Congratulations on the Piopi Diet book. Um, great value. I got it through Amazon for $12 Canadian, I think. So um, that was straight to my Kindle, worked very smoothly. And I can certainly recommend folks checking that out yourself. Good luck with the next steps. Any hints for BJSM listeners about what you're going to focus on in the next few months? Well, I think, Kareem, there's still a big problem on the other side of all of the lifestyle stuff, which is linked. I think there's a massive problem with an over-medicated population. And I've been someone that has certainly pushed and supported and championed the BMJ's too much medicine campaign. And I don't think that's got as, as much attention as it deserves. The medical royal colleges have made it a priority as well through choosing wisely. But I think more importantly is to change the healthcare system where we have more open, transparent discussions with patients. Because currently what's happening is we're making clinical decisions on biased information. And we're even presenting that information that's biased in a biased way to patients. So we've got a big problem here. So I want to focus on a, you know, a more complete, honest, open, transparent discussion with patients and get that into health policy, get into medical training, incorporate lifestyle changes. And we will sort our healthcare crisis and our patients will be healthier and happier. We'll reduce demand on the system 
uh, and also doctors and the health service will be able to survive as well. Thanks, Asim. Brilliant. Cheers, Green. That was the courageous and controversial interventional cardiologist, Asim Alhotra. He has two very much downloaded editorials in the BJSM, and you can catch his previous podcasts through your favorite podcast channel. Thanks for listening today, and we look forward to your comments on these controversial topics. <laughs>